Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is episode 49, which is part three of the Son of Sam series on this podcast. If you haven't, please listen to parts one and two of the series before listening to this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. As we get into the final part of this three-part series, let's just recap what we covered in parts one and two. Part one mainly discussed the definitions and characteristics of a serial killer and introduced the childhood and young adulthood of David Berkowitz. Part two broke down the majority of crimes committed by the son of Sam, the slow recognition of the connectiveness of the killings, the taunting of police by the killer, and the formation of the task force assigned to capture the suspect. We will focus the last part of the series on some of his later letters, his final crimes, how he was caught, his court proceedings, and some closing thoughts. We pick up this part of the story on May 30th of 1977. This is about six weeks after his latest attack and a month after he shot his neighbor's dog. Berkowitz decided to send a letter to Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin. The letter reads as follows. Dear Mr. Jimmy Breslin, Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of New York City and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dried blood of the dead that has seeped into these cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, I don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping, to rest, anxious, to please Sam. I love my work, now the void has been filled." Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam, if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job, or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Miss Loria, thank you in their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation 44. 
and underneath his signing he wrote, Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the slayings to remain. P.S. J.B., please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working on the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. And again, this is a letter you almost need to see. It's hard to describe. It's written in very clean writing, almost as if it was laid out on some form of artist board. The handwriting is very similar to the letter left at the last shooting, but it looks like the suspect took his time to write it a lot neater this time around. And investigators did get fingerprints from the letter, but they had no suspects to match them to at this time. And this is before computerized matching, and even if they did, it's not likely Berkowitz's prints would have been on file as he had no arrests. A week later, Berkowitz's downstairs neighbor, Craig Glassman, received a threatening letter. And to summarize that letter, because it's there's parts of these letters that aren't safe to read on, on my podcast, um, said something to the effect of, True, I am the killer, but Craig, the killings are at your command. And Craig Glassman was a volunteer sheriff's deputy and often wore his uniform in and out of the building. And it's believed that Berkowitz knew Craig was in law enforcement. And there's going to be this letter and a few others are going to have a lot of anger that are directed at Craig. And a lot of Berkowitz's writings include Craig and use the word Craig instead of death. And on June 7th, Berkowitz's driver's license was suspended when he failed to appear in court for his driving without insurance citation. And on June 10th, Berkowitz's landlord in New Rochelle, uh, Jack Cassara, received a letter claiming to be from Sam and Francis Carr, Berkowitz's upstairs neighbor. And it was a get well card for Jack Cassara for falling off the roof, but Jack never fell and he didn't know who Sam and Francis Carr were. And I'll read the letter for you here real quick. It said, Dear Jack, I'm sorry to hear about that fall you took from the roof of your house. Just want to say I'm sorry, but I'm sure it won't be long until you feel much better, healthy, well, and strong. Please be careful next time. Since you're going to be confined for a long time, let us know if Nan needs anything. Seriously, Sam and Francis. And if you don't remember, the Kassaras were the family that Berkowitz moved in with real shortly. He paid that $200 security deposit. That was about $1,000 in today's money. And then after just like a month or something that he moved out because he would later say the dogs were talking with him or something along those lines. And so the Kassaras are going to be obviously taken aback by this get well card they receive about a man falling off a roof. And so they track down the cars who live in Yonkers, just above Berkowitz, and they agree to chat about the odd situation. And as they're talking about their connection, I think it was, I'll say the son of the Kassaras remembered this David Berkowitz that lived with them for a short amount of time. 
And he kind of draws the connection between them and the card and then the letters that Sam has received. And the cars mention they think that Berkowitz shot their dog. And this makes the Caseras realize that a dog in their neighborhood had been shot while Berkowitz lived there for a short amount of time. So again, it's not one of those, it's just one instance, it's the totality of the circumstances that I talk about on other cases, that these two couples are going to get together and say that this, they believe that Berkowitz sent the card, they believe Berkowitz shot both dogs, and they start to think that Berkowitz could be the son of Sam. And two months later, uh, or sorry, they so they notify the police, and it would take about two months, they get a call from the police about their tip, and this is despite a lot of circumstantial evidence, the police basically kind of say this is just David Berkowitz being mentally ill, and there wasn't really any proof in what he had done that made him the son of Sam. And on June 18th, another threatening letter shows up at Craig Glassman's door, and this is the one I really can't read because it's it's pretty angry. There's a lot of profanity in it and stuff, but it's. The letters are signed Craig Darling. So obviously Berkowitz is smart enough not to sign his own name. His, his letters to Sam Carr are from a citizen. His letters to Craig are from Craig Darling. And the neighbors have to obviously be... The cars already think Berkowitz is the son of Sam. And I think Glassman is leaning that way um, as the summer goes on here. The next attack occurred on June 26, 1977. 20-year-old Salvatore Lupo, a mechanic, and 17-year-old Judy Placido were sitting in a car outside a nightclub in Queens around 3 a.m. They were actually talking about how empty the clubs were because of the fear created by the Son of Sam murders when they were suddenly ambushed in their car. Three gunshots entered the car and struck the couple. Salvatore was shot in the forearm and Judy was shot in the head, shoulder, and back but both victims would survive their injuries. Neither victim saw the suspect, but several witnesses reported a man running from the area and getting into a car. One of the witnesses supplied a partial license plate for the car, but it was only two numbers and one letter. Berkowitz would quit his job at the post office on July 29th after only three months of employment, and this is also the same day as the one-year anniversary of Donna Loria's murder. And the task force flooded the streets that night with fears the killer would attack on the anniversary. And remember, he had made that comment to Jimmy Breslin about what are you going to be doing on the 29th or or something along those lines. So the task force had a pretty good assumption that there would be an anniversary attack. And they they went as far as to put male uh, officers into bullet-resistant cars and then dressed up female mannequins with long brunette hair to sit next to them. And this was an attempt to try and lure the suspect into a trap. However, no anniversary attacks occurred. But two days later, Berkowitz would make his final attack. On July 31st, two 20-year-olds, Stacy Moskowitz, a secretary, and Robert Violante, a clothing salesman, were sitting in a car under a streetlight in an area of Bath Beach. They were on their first date, and Robert mentioned taking a walk in the park they were parked next to. Stacy was reluctant, mentioning something about being afraid of the son of Sam, but when Robert got out of the car, she reluctantly followed him to some nearby swings. It's then that they noticed a man watching them. 
This sent chills down their spines, and they decided to walk back to their car. After getting in their car, they began kissing when the man approached to within three feet of the passenger side of the car and fired four shots into it. The bullet struck both victims. Robert was shot in the eye and was blinded by the attack. Stacy was shot in the head and died from her injuries, and she was the only blonde victim of David Berkowitz. Partially due to the fact the murder involved a blonde victim, it was originally looked at as an unrelated homicide and given to a detective named John Felatico to solve. But he was told it was similar enough that if he didn't solve it in two weeks, it would go to the task force. Two days later, at the Yonkers PD, a couple of patrol officers were talking about the report filed by the Cars and Casaras regarding Berkowitz's strange behavior. They dug into the reports a little more and found Berkowitz's registration information, which included the fact he drove a yellow car and the fact that the German Shepherd mentioned by the Casaras was actually shot on Wicker Street, a location mentioned in the Son of Sam letter. And he didn't say Wicker Street in the Son of Sam letter. He said something about Wicked on Wickers or something along those lines. But the, the term Wicker was definitely in the letter, which obviously sp uh, sparked the interest of these two officers. And they proceeded with their investigation carefully because they were patrol officers, not detectives. But they compiled an impressive case against Berkowitz and presented it to a superior who gave them the green light to investigate further. And now around this time, which was roughly four days after the last shooting, a woman named Cecilia Davis called NYPD to tell them that on the night of the attack, she'd been walking in the area. She saw a NYPD officer ticketing a yellow car parked by a fire hydrant. Soon after the officer left, a young man walked by her and seemed to study her. She said he creeped her out and he was holding some sort of dark object in his hand and she began running towards her home, and not long after, she heard four gunshots. NYPD looked into all the parking citations issued in the area that night, and Berkowitz's yellow 1974 Galaxy was included in the list of possible suspect cars. Also at this time, Yonkers PD responded to Berkowitz's building, as Craig Glassman had found a small fire burning outside his door. Inside the fire were several 22 caliber bullets. The fire never got hot enough to ignite the powder and set off the bullets, but when officers arrived, one of them that had been involved in looking at closer at Berkowitz was shown a couple letters that Glassman had received. The officer recognized the handwriting as believing it to belong to the son of Sam, and Glassman believed it came from his upstairs neighbor, David Berkowitz. Around the same time, Sam Carr had been so upset by the last shooting that he drove to the task force headquarters and demanded to speak to someone about Berkowitz. Someone at the task force did listen, but Carr's testimony alone did not move the needle much. However, the next day, task force members learned about the witness to the last shooting and called around to the precincts where the suspects lived, and that is where when NYPD detective James Justice called the Yonkers PD to ask them to set up an interview with Berkowitz. And now in doing so, as fate would have it, he ended up talking with Wheat Carr. Wheat Carr was a Yonkers PD dispatcher and the daughter of Sam Carr and neighbor to David Berkowitz. So when Detective Justice said Berkowitz's name, she told the detective that she knew him and that 
the family believed he had shot their dog and had issues with her father, Sam. And then when she mentioned that her father's name was Sam, Detective Justice felt they had their suspect. And this was further confirmed by the investigation done by the officers at Yonkers PD. The following evening, August 10th, 1977, police converged on Berkowitz's building. They first looked in his car and could see a gun in plain view, so they searched the car and found maps of the crime scenes, a letter written by Son of Sam to the head of the task force, and ammunition. Now, this search was legal due to the Plainview Doctrine and automobile exemptions to a search warrant, but with their new evidence, they wanted a search warrant for his apartment. And we haven't talked about the exemptions to search warrants. I know I think I've mentioned in one of the cases that there's there are exemptions to search warrants and automobiles are one of them because they're mobile property but there's another exemption that's plain view and that's basically saying if a police officer sees something that might be evidence probable cause that a crime has been committed or is being committed they don't have to look away just because they don't have a search warrant the the fact that they see it in plain view is enough for officers to act upon that to either make an arrest to seize the object whatever it might be because the suspect left it out in plain view so between the plain view doctrine and the automobile exemption they're able to get into this car find this stuff but they know that they these same rules don't exist for uh, berkowitz's apartment so they're sitting around waiting for a judge to sign the search warrant and while they're waiting for the search warrant a man steps outside police surround him with guns drawn however he identifies himself as craig glassman and task force members realized they had stopped the wrong guy a few hours later berkowitz steps outside and this time officers let the suspect get into his car at this point detective felatico who had been put in charge of stacy moskowitz's murder put his gun to Berkowitz's head and told him he was under arrest. There was a brief exchange between them that is offered in many variations today, but they all basically revolve around Berkowitz admitting to Detective Falatico that he was Sam, as in the son of Sam. The search warrant for his apartment arrived, and the search revealed an apartment that was in disarray with satanic symbols drawn on the walls and several diaries that Berkowitz had kept since he was young, detailing his arsons and other activities. He was brought to a precinct to be interviewed, and even the mayor of New York visited the precinct, after which he declared to the citizens of New York that the terror was over and the son of Sam was in custody. Berkowitz was interrogated for only around 30 minutes the following morning. He offered no resistance and openly confessed to the shootings and requested that he be allowed to plead guilty to his crimes. When asked why he did what he did, Berkowitz claimed it was Sam Carr's dog that told him to kill, and the dog was possessed by an ancient demon, and it needed the blood of young women to feed upon. After initially being denied access to writing the outside world, after a few weeks, Berkowitz was allowed to write letters, and he sent several to news media outlets claiming he was just one of the sons of Sam, and there were others that would continue to kill. This claim would gain support and criticism over the years, and there have been numerous books and documentaries claiming the son of Sam was part of a much larger satanic cult responsible for murders across the country. However, many experts, including some of the foremost minds in criminal psychology, state that Berkowitz is too antisocial to have worked with others, let alone been part of a giant and secretive cult.
Berkowitz himself would later deny he was part of any organization or cult, and three separate psychologists found him competent to stand trial and to plead guilty. On May 8, 1978, he pled guilty to all the shootings. Two weeks later, he attempted to jump out of a window in the courtroom during his sentencing. He was yelling derogatory statements about his last victim as he ran towards the window, but he was restrained and ordered to undergo another psychiatric exam before sentencing. Another psychologist found him competent to attend his sentencing, and as part of his plea agreement, he was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder, with the sentences to run consecutively. Despite this adding up to a lengthy sentence, he was eligible for parole after 25 years. Berkowitz was transferred through several mental health facilities and prisons over the years, and shortly after his initial incarceration, he was attacked in prison in a stabbing that almost took his life. A fellow inmate cut his neck, leaving a laceration that required 58 stitches to close. Berkowitz would later say he felt he deserved this, and worse, for what he had done, and he refused to identify the inmate who attacked him. Berkowitz became an evangelical Christian in 1987 and has worked with a church for the last 36 years to try and counsel other inmates in Christian belief. He now wishes for people to refer to him as the son of hope and not the son of Sam. He was first eligible for parole in 2002 and wrote a letter to the parole board in advance requesting they cancel it as he feels he belongs behind bars for life, but they denied his request to cancel. He has been denied parole every two years since 2002, and his 2020 parole was delayed inevitably due to COVID. Now, as I mentioned before, there's been a lot of cult conspiracies around this case, so I thought I would at least talk about my thoughts on that and some of the research I did. And that is, after Berkowitz told the media that the killings were part of a larger cult, the story got even more sensationalized. This was pre-Satanic Panic of the 80s, but a more conservative wave was hitting America as the late 70s saw movement away from the wild and crazy times of the counterculture revolution, and TV evangelists such as Billy Graham, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, and Jerry Falwell were building Christian entertainment empires, and Americans were latching on by the millions. So the idea that a cult of devil worshippers that killed for their master was perfect fuel for the growing fire of belief amongst these this growing conservative following. People wanted there to be this evil group of young adults that proved the need for stronger Christian resolve in the country. And the problem with the theory as I see it is Berkowitz named members of this group to include the killer of Arliss Perry. And she was a Stanford student killed in a school chapel at Stanford University, and Berkowitz claimed in 1979 that the unsolved murder, at least it was unsolved at that time, was the work of a satanic cult named Manson II, and that case would actually be solved in 2018 via DNA, and the suspect was not a cult member, but was a campus security guard. And although he stated he would never name members of the cult, He did name two members, which were John and Michael Carr, and they were the sons of Sam Carr, and by the time Berkowitz named them as members of the cult, they were both dead, 
and one had killed themselves and one had died by a car accident and there was never any proof of their involvement in any satanic cult or connection to Berkowitz that has ever been made. Now some people who believe in the multi-shooter theory, they point out to differences in the attack styles, the victims, and the suspect descriptions as proof that Berkowitz did not act alone. However, the attack styles are similar, at least in my opinion, because it involves isolated single or couple targets. And given most of the attacks occurred at night in situations where the shooter's vision was obscured by car windows and windshields, the difference in attacks is negligible. And what I mean by this is he's not able to control the actions of his victims to a certain degree. He's not taking them out at gunpoint and and walking him to a certain location and only shooting the females. He's an ambush killer, so he's adjusting his attack style to what is presented to him. In some cases it's two women on a porch. In other cases it's you know he's in a car and he happens upon two other people in a car so he pulls his car up next to him and shoots them. Uh, and other times he's watching people get in and out of vehicles. He's waiting. So just because the attack pattern is different does not mean that it's two different shooters. I believe it's just based on what he's being presented with in terms of a target. If they're not getting out of the car, he'll shoot them while they're in the car. If he thinks one of them's getting out of the car, he might wait until they get out of the car. If if they don't if a car's not involved at all, then you can't have a car involved. So it's one of those things where I don't think you can attribute differences in the attack styles or differences in the victims as proof positive that there was more than one uh, suspect. And then when you talk about the difference in suspect descriptions, victims of critical incidents are often not the most reliable eyewitnesses because they're going through an incredible amount of stress that's being put on their brain during these incidents. And just like we talked with the Valerie Ely case uh, where we broke down officer-involved shootings, when it comes to these critical incidents involving victims, they often will suffer things like memory loss, tunnel vision, or auditory or other sensory losses, and that can account for a difference in appearances. And oftentimes victims will either consciously or subconsciously fill in the gaps in their memory to try and help the investigation, and this may also result in false information. And this is just human nature if you're involved in a, a critical incident, most people would probably feel that it's expected that they're going to remember all these details of what happened to them. And that's far from the truth, but because they believe that it's expected, or in certain cases, police may either ask leading questions or badger them with questions to the point that they feel like they just need to answer it so they can go home or get away whatever it might be or sometimes they just think they can be really helpful when they really can't and ultimately what ends up happening is then you get you you can have three different victims at the same instance the, the same event describe the suspect three different ways let alone you know different evenings, different stuff. And it's not to say that Berkowitz couldn't have 
dyed his hair or worn a wig or anything like that. Just certain things about human appearance are easily changeable. And just because somebody can change that doesn't mean that, that we have to believe that it's two different people. Now, the most compelling evidence for the lack of the satanic cult at work theory is the interviews conducted by famed FBI profiler Robert Resler, and he's one of the three individuals that were credited with starting the criminal profiling unit at the FBI, and he actually sat down with Berkowitz in prison in 1979, and during that interview, Berkowitz admitted to making up all of the demon possession and satanic ties to be used as an insanity defense when he got caught. And he admitted to Ressler that he attacked women because of the anger he felt towards them for being rejected by women and his resentment towards his mother for abandoning him and lying to him. And he would tell Ressler that he was able to obtain sexual release over the attacks and he often relived the attacks in order to obtain sexual arousal. Berkowitz also admitted to stalking and hunting women he didn't attack because he enjoyed the power it made him feel. And he would often return to the scenes of his crimes and relive the attacks. And he often tried, but was thankfully unsuccessful, at finding the graves of his victims. He told Ressler that he wanted to attend the funerals for his victims, but he was worried it would be too suspicious, so he would hu- instead he hung out at diners where police officers were, hoping he'd hear them talk about his attacks and how they were hunting him. The letters he wrote were to bring about more attention to his crimes and feed his sick desire for publicity for the killings. He didn't come up with the Son of Sam moniker, but when he heard it, he liked it and made his own symbol for it, which is he used on future correspondence. And I say he didn't come up with the Son of Sam moniker. Of course, he called himself the Son of Sam, and that's where it came from. But it's not like he demanded everybody call him the son of Sam. If I recall right, I think the Zodiac would say stuff like, this is the Zodiac speaking, or he, you know, he really built off of, of the Zodiac name, whereas the son of Sam, he, just, he adopted after it kind of caused this media firestorm. And, you know, after Wrestler kind of, told everybody what he thought of Berkowitz. Uh, Berkowitz would continue to tell people, including the media, uh, that he was possessed by this ancient demon. Uh, He went as far as to request an exorcism while he was in prison, which was denied. And, but he claims he's been reborn through his belief in Christ and is no longer a danger to anyone, but he wants to remain behind bars as a punishment for the acts he committed. So, as we kind of close this out here, mention that this episode is more about Berkowitz's upbringing and how his experiences and behaviors paved the way for him to form extremely unhealthy views towards the world and, and women in general, and how he ultimately acted on these misguided beliefs. And most people would think he targeted women that looked like his mother because of the hatred he had for her as a result of lying about his birth mother. And that, combined with his inability to form normal relationships with women, filled him with the desire to enact his own form of revenge on women, sadly at the cost of six lives. And all of the demon talk, letters, and behaviors tie more into his desire for attention than they do an actual 
mental illness. And while he clearly has mental health issues, he's an intelligent person who knows how to manipulate the system and the media to his advantage. And I say that because some people will say, clearly with the stuff that was in his apartment, the stuff that he was writing in these letters, the stuff that he continued to say after he was arrested, and if he was just going for insanity defense, why didn't he do that? Why did he plead guilty? And I think it was because that he recognized the sensationalism that came with all of this stuff. He craved attention. He he, he wanted that attention for being different, for, for people to fear him. And there's a lot of people that you'll meet in your life and they're those people that will embellish every story to try to be to one up the other person if something happened to somebody in a story they'll follow up with a story that's well you, you know you think that was crazy listen to this type of a thing and david berkowitz definitely had that to him and i think he was intelligent enough from the very beginning to realize that if he concocted this entire satanic cult satanic worship killing talking with dogs killing with people for blood sacrifice that that would catch a lot more attention than just some guy who's angry at women is out there killing women and so while i think he was motivated by his resentment and anger towards women i think all the other stuff was just to get attention above and beyond on top of that and his upbringing has several key factors that lead me to believe this about his future future behavior. And as a child and a man, he was somebody who craved that attention and attachment. And if you go back to his childhood, you look at some of his acts of defiance and behaviors like sleeping in his parents' bed or killing his mother's bird because he thought she was giving it too much attention. He learned really early on that bad behavior gets him attention and he continued throughout his life to act out get into fights and start fires and it's possible he suffered some brain damage during those head injuries which may have further damaged parts of his brains when he did drugs and despite that though he seemed to be able to function with his society and could hold a job when he wanted to and that's another thing that we haven't talked about yet. It seems he had a problem with consistency. And this is whether it be his living arrangements or jobs. He would start something and then leave after a short amount of time. And this is likely part of his compulsive behavior that craves new environments and situations in order to escape the fact that his life is lonely without meeting. And I really think this is what it comes down to with some serial killers and especially Berkowitz is it mainly comes down to purpose if you look at the most stable time in his life I would say that was his time in the army and this was likely filled with change and purpose and other than his petty offenses uh, he really excelled during his time in the military and this is because when you're in the military when you're not an NCO when you're just an, an enlisted guy you're not making decisions everybody's telling you what to do you've got a job to do and and there's purpose behind that job and that whether that's a simple task or a complex one you're you're given direction and then you're 
in most cases at least recognized when that task is finished. So in the military, especially as an infantryman, it's simple. It's, you know, we're going to do this task, we're going to practice this battle drill, whatever it might be, and you go out and you do it, and there's purpose, you, you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and, and a lot of guys and gals that leave the military, they struggle when they get back to civilian life because there isn't that sense of purpose, there isn't a schedule, you're not being told every day you're getting up at 5 a.m. to go do physical fitness stuff. You're not being told that dinner's at this time and lunch is at this time, and, and that structure and purpose ceases to exist. Suddenly, you're sleeping when you want to sleep and you know, waking up when you want to wake up. And even if you get a job, if it's not one that's filled with purpose, if it has, had, has monotony, like working for the post office, some people thrive on that. But I think he needed constant change, constant purpose, and he wasn't getting it. And so he would go from job to job and living location to living location in order to find that purpose in his life. And you combine that with the trauma he witnessed as a child, along with his learned behaviors and his emotional fragility, and this all combined to create a monster who found purpose and pleasure in stalking and attacking women. And that sense of purpose only grew as he found he had the power to strike fear in an entire city. And thankfully he was caught and put behind bars for the rest of his life, but his story is an important one to know and use as a comparison for future episodes. He is the prototypical serial killer who kills for power, control, and even with a sexual component, and I will likely reference him many times down the road on this podcast. So really that's what this podcast was about. It was or this this episode I should say was about was was taking those early definitions we talked about of serial killers, of stuff like the McDonald Triangle, of stuff like head injuries, experienced or witnessed trauma, all that kind of stuff. And because David Berkowitz's childhood and young adult is so well documented, you can really look at all of this stuff as it progresses through his life and then see how what he ended up doing, the the people he ended up attacking, the women he ended up killing, it all ties back to the stuff from his childhood. And when we cover other serial killers, whether it be, eventually we're going to do John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy and Jeff Dahmer and all that kind of stuff. When we cover those serial killers, I wanted these episodes to kind of serve as those benchmarks and we can talk about the childhoods or traumas or experiences that those serial killers went through and how their later crimes can be associated. But I wanted to cover it in this one because, again, it, it's it's so clear-cut that he's got pretty much everything. You can check the box. He was set up to, to turn in this monster. And again, I will say, just as a disclaimer, not everybody who goes through this trauma, goes through these head injuries, goes through abandonment or rejection or whatever it might be, turns into a serial killer. I understand that. But it's you're going to be hard-pressed to find too many serial killers, and as we go through here, we'll point this out, that don't have some of these shared characteristics in their childhood, in how they were raised, uh, however it might be. So, so that's it for the uh, episodes on the Son of Sam and on serial killers. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, please stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. 
You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook. And if you can, please support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. I would love to be able to name off some people or even if you're anonymous, but you just want to get a thank you over the air, I will anonymously thank you over the air uh, if you guys support me at Patreon. So appreciate it, guys. Uh, Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.